0: Welcome to Practical Christian Living.
1: How do we worship Him in spirit? Well, first of all, it's not an outward expression. We may have an outward expression of how we're feeling inside. We may be in our room praying and we feel just like bowing down to the ground before God. And that may be an outward expression of worshiping Him in spirit. But what is more important, first of all, is that things are right between you and God. That you have a right relationship with Him.
0: Worshiping Jesus is something we do in many more ways than just music or hymns. We worship with our actions, our giving. Ultimately, we worship God with our lives. Today on Practical Christian Living, we're looking at the beautiful account of the woman who worshiped Jesus with her whole heart because she knew he would soon be gone. May we have that same passion and fervency. With John 1 through 11, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson.
1: The passage in front of us teaches us about worship. And I think the topic is greatly misunderstood. The act of this woman at a dinner becomes a memorial for her, an example of what real worship is all about. Oftentimes when we ask people, are you a worshiper or have you worshiped? We mistakenly think that that is the portion of the service that we call praise which of course, if it's done rightly, it is worship. If you are here and you are honestly entering into the presence of God and you are lifting Him up and you are surrendering yourself to Him and you are exalting Him, giving Him worth and giving Him honor, then that is praise. And it's not the outward expression that matters, by the way, because sometimes someone can be raising their hands and looking like they're really involved in it and be thinking about pizza. And sometimes people can be standing there without any outward expression at all. If you look at them, you think they're not involved at worship at all, but they might deeply be in that communication with God as they are lifting him up and worshiping him. What matters, and we're we're gonna see clearly, is on the inward, that's what matters. There are a couple of passages that help us understand what worship is. One of them is when Jesus talks to the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan and he's Jewish. They are two different people groups and they are different in what they worship. And so finally, she says to him, we worship on Mount Gerizim. You guys worship in Jerusalem. What is the right place to worship? Jesus's response to her on worship is this. John 4, 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. He brackets his answer to her with the expectation of a change in worship. The hour is coming when it's not in Jerusalem or Gerizim that you worship at all. Then he says to her, you worship what you don't know. He's just being honest with her, straightforward. What they were doing on Mount Gerizim was not what was supposed to be done. You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And then he brackets the other side of it. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such to worship him god is looking for worshipers he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth how do we worship him in spirit well first of all it's not an outward expression we may have an outward expression of how we're feeling inside We may be in our room praying and we feel just like bowing down to the ground before God. And that may be an outward expression of worshiping Him in spirit. But what is more important, first of all, is that things are right between you and God. That you have a right relationship with Him. And I think also, when it comes to our worship, that we have a right relationship with the people around us as much as it concerns us. And by the way, having things right with Him means that you don't have any unconfessed sin in your life. That you don't have anything that needs to be taken care of. You keep short accounts with God and you make things right. It's one of the reasons Jesus told us, pray in this manner. It was a daily prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Because we need to regularly make things right. And then when we're right with Him, we worship in spirit. That's what matters. We are lifting Him up. We are spirit. We don't have a spirit. We are spirit. And when we worship Him, we're worshiping Him from that spirit. And that's what matters. And then, of course, truth. And that is that the knowledge that we have about him comes from the scriptures. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And if you worship in your own way, it doesn't mean you're really worshiping. Someone who says, well, I worship God from my hot tub. Look up at the stars and I worship him. Now, don't get me wrong. You can worship God from a hot tub. But if that's the only way that you worship, you're not worshiping the way the scriptures tell you to worship and I don't know whether that is sufficient. If you're worshiping from a cult, you're not worshiping from the truth. So we want to study the scriptures that we can know what they say so that we're worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And God's looking for people who will do that. So whatever that means, that's what we want to be. We want to be those people that worship him in spirit and truth. The second passage that helps us understand what worship is, is Romans 12, one and two. To understand this passage there are two words in Greek for worship one of them literally means to bow down and we understand that one when Thomas bowed down before Jesus and said my Lord and my God he was worshiping him when John bows down in front of an angel the angel says get up and don't do that you shall worship God and him alone shall you serve and so when we think of worship we should think of surrendering When you're bowing down to someone you're giving them fealty you're saying i am yours i belong to you you are worthy of it the second word in the greek is the word for honor and honor it's an interesting thing it can be hard to describe when someone does something that is worthy of honor we say of people who are in the military especially if they did something that was of significance there that they are worthy of the honor that they receive that's the greek word for worship We're saying that we want to give honor to God, that he has done so much for us, that he has loved so much, that he is so great that we want to honor him. Now, we find that word for worship in this text. It says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Look at the word service there. That's the word for honoring. That's translated in the NIV and many other translations as worship. It's your reasonable worship. And so this verse tells us five different things about worshiping Him. Number one, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's God that forgives us. It's God that allows our spirit to be right, to be able to worship Him in spirit. And so we understand that we are worshiping Him by God's mercy. The second is that you present your body as a living sacrifice. This is the picture of bowing down. It's the picture of surrender. It's another way of saying what Jesus said when he said, you can't be my disciple unless you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. You are bowing down before him. We give our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. We belong to you. Use us. Let us be the light. Let us be the salt. Let us be all those things that you said that we would be. And then he says, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And I love that, that us surrendering to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, is reasonable. You would think that he might say, that's your extraordinary service. We're going to see Mary give an extraordinary gift. But he says, that's your reasonable worship. He then says, in verse two, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In our worship, we don't wanna be conformed by the world. The world puts pressure on us from all angles. And when we are conformed by it, we become like the world. We understand that we think a lot like our culture. We live in this culture. We grew up in this culture. We think the way that we think today because we are living in this culture. If we lived 100 years ago, we would think differently. We would have different views. We should understand that. We should know that we have certain views because we live in the time that we live and other times have different views. But we also know that we could be transformed by the Word of God, that there can be a transformation by renewing our mind so that we can examine God's Word to know how we think and that when we take our cues about how we should live, that we shouldn't take them from our culture, where our culture differs from the Word of God, we should be transformed by renewing our mind. And what a different picture when we think about worshiping God, not being conformed by this world, which seems like such a heavy thing and a lot of pressure making us into something, but being transformed, which is such a freeing thing by renewing our minds. When we give our lives to Christ, In that reasonable worship, our minds are renewed. And then something else happens. It doesn't say that we enter into God's will, but it says we prove that His will. In other words, when we worship Him and honor Him in this way, when we aren't conformed by the world and transformed, we prove, at the very end of this verse, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. People see us as we are those kind of worshipers. And God's will is good, and God's will is acceptable, and God's will is perfect. These are not three different levels of God's will, by the way. Maybe you've heard that taught, that you might be in God's good will, but it's not the acceptable will, or you might have God's acceptable will, but it's not good and perfect, or you might have the perfect will of God, which is where we all want to be. That's not what it means. It means God's will for you is good. You can receive it. It's acceptable, and it's perfect for you. It's exactly what you need. It is so much more powerful. So we can worship. We can go through that worship process right now, making things right between us and God. You don't have to wait until the end of the study. As we're talking about worship and looking at Mary worshiping, we can now, if there's anything in our life that needs to change, you can quietly just speak to God. I give you permission to ignore me for the more important part of saying, God, forgive me. Help me to do what's right. Work in me. Change me. Allow God to be able to do those things in your life, and then we will be able to be those who really do worship. And so we come to our text with the idea of what worship is, and we see in John 12, 1 through 11, it says, then six days before the Passover, Jesus is crucified on the preparation day of the Passover. Jesus came to Bethany were Lazarus who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Now, Matthew and Mark also give us this account. And Matthew tells us that this is not the house of Lazarus that they're meeting in. When we meet, we read in John that they're in Bethany, and we know that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live in Bethany, we think, well, it must be in Lazarus' house. But it's not. Matthew says it's in Simon the leper's house. And I assume that he is no longer a leper, says he has people over to his house. And I assume that he's been delivered from Jesus. What a dinner this must have been. A leper that has been cleansed, a man that's been risen from the dead. And we know that all kinds of people came to see. The dinners in those days, remember, were open. People could come in and out and they could listen to the conversations that were taking place. And we learn a little bit later on that that's happening, not just because they want to come and see Jesus, which happened a lot, but because they wanted to see the guy that was dead and is alive again, and that is Lazarus. And so they're having a supper for him. And then it says, there they made him supper, and Martha served, which makes sense, right? Martha was serving when Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. I don't know if Martha was serving uh, when four days after her brother had died, when Jesus showed up, but I kind of think she was. And here we're told that she's serving again. And Lazarus was one who sat at the table with him. Lazarus was fellowshipping with Jesus. And Mary, well, she's at his feet once again. And all three of these are so important for us. It's important for us to spend time at the feet of Jesus, learning his word, worshiping from him, bringing our grief to him, as we saw this last weekend. It's important for us to serve him, not to be worried about many things, right? There needs to be a balance there because some people are workaholics. And the other side, there's people who don't work at all. They're like, I'll just sit at the feet all the time. That's good. So a balance that we're doing what God's given us gifts to do and we're involved in it. And then, of course, sitting at the table and fellowshipping with Jesus. Each one of these are a part of what we're supposed to do. It says, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of Spike Nerd, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped her feet with her hair. Now, let's pause there for a moment because I want to reiterate, and I think that all of you guys that are listening to this understand that this is not the prostitute that cried on Jesus' feet and wiped her tears with her hair. I say that because people get this conflated and confused all of the time because of that story of that woman that had a bad reputation that came in and Jesus forgave her when she wept at his feet and wiped her tears with her hair and then Mary, the sister of Martha, doing this, being confused with Mary Magdalene that people assume is a prostitute, Bible never tells us that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute by the way and when someone says well we just assume she's a prostitute I think that's not what you assume you assume she's not a prostitute you don't assume that she's a prostitute and so the prostitute that came in and cried at his feet Mary Magdalene getting involved and then Mary the sister of Martha and people have these accounts all messed up so this is Mary the sister of Martha the brother of Lazarus every time we see her she's at the feet of Jesus And it says that she brings a very costly oil of Spike Nerd. You know what this is? Some of you guys are going to like this. It is essential oil. It's exactly what it is. Spike Nerd is an essential oil. And it is very expensive. A pound of Spike Nerd would be, and who knows these numbers? I mean, I was hearing that it was $15,000, you know, 30 years ago. So there's been a lot of inflation in 30 years. So I'm going to add some to that. It's like $20,000, $25,000, maybe more. It's an expensive thing. And that tells us a couple of things about the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It tells us that they had money because they were living there together. She has this very expensive thing. Some have pointed out that this might have been part of her dowry. Perfumes and spices, frankincense and myrrh, spike nerd were ways that they held wealth in those days and this might have been part of what she had been given part of her wealth and think about how extravagant it is for her to give that to Jesus it's like the opposite of the woman giving in the treasury that gave two pennies and Jesus said of her she's given everything that she has she gave more than anybody she's given everything she had I don't know this might have been everything that she had we're not told But she gives this extravagant gift that is on the other side. And it is so extravagant that it shocks the disciples. So it is very expensive. And it says that she anointed the feet of Jesus. By the way, Matthew also tells us that she anointed the head of Jesus. So she anointed his head and she anointed his feet. Now, anointing with oil was done at specific times for specific people but it was done most significantly for our account after death, before burial. You would anoint the body because they did not embalm in Israel. The way that they buried was to put someone in a tomb. They would lay them on a slab. That slab was not their final resting place. They would wait until time had done its job And there was nothing but bones and dust that were left. Everything had decayed. And then they would go in and they would gather all of those things and they would put them into a bone box. And they would put that somewhere in the tomb or somewhere in the cave. So you would have family members that their bone boxes would be there and that slab would be available to put somebody else when they had died. We're told that when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus asked for the body of Jesus and received it, that they wrapped it Hastily, and then laid it in a new tomb that had never been used before. I believe that that new tomb would become the mercy seat, by the way. On that resurrection day, there would be two angels, one at his feet and one at his head, saying, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? But think about it the anointing of the body of Jesus wasn't going to take place until Sunday morning when those women were carrying spices and myrrh to the tomb. They were going to anoint the body of Jesus. Somehow Mary knew that Jesus was not going to be anointed. I think there could be a couple of things here. I think, first of all, Mary sat at his feet and learned from his word. The disciples had heard Jesus say many times, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and they are going to kill me. And I'm going to rise again in the third day. And the disciples would do something like, They're not going to kill you. They just missed it completely. That he was going to rise again. But Mary, who sat at his feet and listened to his word, somehow had some insight that none of the other disciples had, especially at this point in time. And it may tell us the importance of sitting and listening to his word, of really understanding it, of reading it daily, of applying it, of studying it, of memorizing it that we would have an understanding of what God's doing. Mary did because of, I believe, because of that very reason. So it says that Mary took the pound of very costly spike nerd, which, by the way, is a lot, right? A pound? And Matthew tells us she breaks the bottle. So she didn't just give him some and then put it away. She gave him everything. She broke it. And she anointed his feet and she anointed his, his head and she wiped his feet with her hair, which, of course, in doing so, she took on the fragrance of Christ. And some have pointed out that when we worship Jesus by honoring him, which is what Mary's doing. And by the way, this, this had to be an awkward moment. They're at dinner and they're hanging out and Martha's serving and here comes Mary. She's got her perfume. What's she doing by the feet of Jesus? Crack. And then she anoints his feet and wipes it with her hair and everybody in the room is kind of like, not quite sure what's taking place here. Not quite sure what's going on. It had to be an awkward moment. But there at the end of verse 3, it says, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. When we give our gifts to God, when we honor him, who is totally worthy of honor, when we bow down before him and surrender our life to him, we take on the fragrance of Christ, which we really need. We want to be Christ-like. The church often has not been Christ-like. There was a book that was written probably 20 years ago now, maybe 25 years ago now, called The Day America Told the Truth. And it was all anonymous answers everybody answered anonymously but they were encouraged to answer truthfully they had a section on religion and they asked people what do you think about the church the answers were overwhelmingly negative the vast majority of people look at the church and don't like it but then they were also asked what do you think of jesus and the answers were overwhelmingly positive there's somehow a disconnect from whom Jesus is and the world, how they see him and us who, is in the, who are in the church and how the world sees us. The more we worship him, the more we gain his fragrance, the more we are like him. We want to have the love that he had. We want to get upset at the things he gets upset at. We want to be like Christ. That's what our name is, Christians, little Christs. That's what they were called, first of all, the Bible says, in Antioch. That's where we get our name. And so the room was filled with the fragrance of the oil. May we spend time really worshiping him. Now, if this were a little show, a little, you know, a little movie, then the scene would change and some ominous music would start to play. It says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Oh, we all know Judas. Even the name Iscariot sounds bad, doesn't it? Judas Iscariot. Matthew tells us that all of the disciples joined in with him. So Judas is like the ringleader, and then all the other disciples are like, yeah, because what Judas says makes sense to our minds. Listen to what he says Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him. He lets you know this is the guy that betrayed him. And we get some insight here, by the way, as to why Judas betrayed him. We might be torn because the Old Testament tells us that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And the Old Testament tells us that one who ate bread at his table would betray him. So these things are foretold. So Judas would do them. But I believe that God foretells what happens. God doesn't foretell and then make people do it. In his knowledge, he knows what Judas was going to do. And so he wrote of it beforehand. It isn't like Judas was this robot on this mission and that he he didn't have choice like everybody else has choice. He had choice and he didn't need to waste his life.
0: We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com.